Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, your mercy, all the ways you bless us and sustain us and provide the things that we need uh, for life and godliness through the deep personal knowledge that we have of our Lord Jesus. And so today, as we continue to make our way through Acts and we look at these sermons that Peter preached uh, over 2000 years ago, uh, it's incredible how they're still as powerful today as they were the very day that these words came out of his mouth. And so we pray you'll give us insight and understanding of these truths that you've recorded and preserved for us all these years so that we can have hope. And uh, we, we give you all praise for all these things for Jesus' great namesake. Amen. All right, y'all, in your notes, we're on page 18. Last week, we read through Peter's sermon in uh, Acts chapter 2. And uh, we, we did just a little bit of observation about it and a little bit of talking about it. But this week, we're going to dig into it just a little bit more. Uh, to set the context, let me remind you that in Acts 2, we've had this really significant event take place where the Holy Spirit has uh, descended on the disciples and he's filled the disciples and they began to speak in foreign languages to all the people that were in Jerusalem for the festivals. Uh, and they began to speak to them in their own languages about the great and mighty works of God. And so we assume that they're talking about all the things that have happened with Jesus' death and resurrection in the uh, past several days. And so um, Peter picks up his sermon to explain in part what the cr part of the crowd was saying. We looked at last week that as all this has taken place, this commotion, uh, some people are asking, what in the world can this mean? And then other people are sneering and saying, well, they're full of new wine. They're drunk, you know, which is a nonsensical way to think about that. Uh, but Peter gets up and now he's going to explain what's going on. So today, let, let's just work our way through this. I'm going to read a section at a time, make a few comments on it, and then we'll um, deal with each little chunk as we go through here. So Acts 2, 14 through 36 on page 18, P, uh, Peter's first sermon says, Peter stood up with the eleven and he raised his voice and he proclaimed to them, men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Uh, on the contrary, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he gives a long quote from Joel, 2.17 through 21. I, this is, I mean, the, the thing I always think about with this is, you know, Peter in the Gospels, as we said, he's always saying the right thing and the wrong thing all at the same time. And now all of a sudden he is quoting this extended section from Joel, kind of an obscure prophet, you know, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later, but here it comes. And, and the thing I wonder is, would this have even been possible without the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. Because one of the things that um, Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he was talking to the apostles. He said, he's going to bring to remembrance everything that I taught you and also the things that you need to know. Right. So Peter's probably grown up here in this passage in synagogue. And now the Holy Spirit just brings it to memory. This is what's going on here. Right? He's connecting the dots for him. So really, really incredible the way this plays out. So he quotes from Joel then 217 through 21. 
Uh, he says, and it will be in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. And then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your mo- young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. Uh, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the terrible, uh, great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, uh, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And you, you can go back and read that in its larger context. It's really interesting because if you go back and you read that passage in Joel, the, the, the primary focus in that passage is about the coming of the day of the Lord the great day of judgment that's going to come at the end of history, at the end of this present age. Uh, and the Jews were looking for this day to come. They had been looking for it ever since the, the mainline prophets began to prophesy about it. Um, after Elijah and you know, then the what so-called classical prophets come on the scene and you've got Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and all the other prophets that are in the Old Testament there starts to be this theme of the day of the Lord is coming, right? The, the day of judgment. And in many of the passages, uh, the day of the Lord was uh, symbolic in a sense of the coming uh, destruction under the Babylonians, if you remember that from the Old Testament, when God had decreed that the people of Israel would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Uh, Solomon's temple would be destroyed. They would go into captivity, but the Lord would keep a remnant alive. And he started to talk about that as being the day of the Lord, the day of judgment that falls on Israel. But as time went on, that message expanded and the day of the Lord started to look toward this final day at the end of history, which, by the way, the book of Revelation uh, is primarily concerned about all the events that surround the day of the Lord. And And the basic idea there is, There is a day in the future where the Lord God himself is going to tear the heavens open and appear in space and time and history. And it'll be the Lord Jesus himself. And as the book of Revelation (laughs) tells us, not everybody's going to be prepared for that day, right? When it's finally revealed. And it's going to be a day in which the Lord brings judgment on all those who have not given their allegiance to him, to the one true God. But it's going to be a day of salvation for his people. And so that, that's what happens in Joel too. Most of the chapter is about this judgment that's going to come on the godless and the wicked and the faithless. But there's also this, this promise of salvation that comes before. And this promise of salvation um, is what Peter touches on here, that in these last days, before this great and terrible day of the Lord comes, he's going to pour out his spirit, and look at this, on all humanity, everybody. And the idea there is, it's not just going to be on one people group. It's not just going to be for the Israelites. It's not just going to be for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just going to be for the Jewish people. It's going to be on all humanity. And we actually see that in the book of Revelation when we see uh, the great crowd in heaven that's been redeemed from the earth. And they're from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, right? From, from all the different people groups. And so here we, we see that forecast in Joel. And the key word there is this pouring out of the Spirit. 
And notice what they're going to do when the Spirit is poured out. The sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. All that's going to happen in the book of Acts. We're going to have dreams and visions. We're going to have prophetic statements. Um, Notice it doesn't mention anything about the speaking in tongues here. Did you notice that? That's that's really interesting, right? Uh, So that was something that happened that was not clearly foreseen, uh, not clearly spelled out, at least in this passage. And then he goes on to say, 2.18, I'll even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days. They will prophesy. In other words, it's going to happen across the strata of culture, greatest people to the lesser of people in any culture. There's, there's not going to be any division there from the least to the greatest, right? Uh, and then you get to the part that's more about this coming of this terrifying and awesome day of the Lord. I'll display wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, a cloud of smoke, sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Those very images again are picked up in the book of Revelation. And we get a lot of lot of imagery about the blood, the fire, and the smoke. In fact, y'all probably remember all of the judgments that take place in Revelation have some part of those elements in it. Blood, fire, and smoke. You see that all over the place. Um, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. That's repeated over and over in some of the, you know, the passages about the end times. And notice all this is going to happen before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. And then he says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there's two things in this passage that sets the stage for everything else. Number one is the giving of the spirit, right? Spirit's going to be poured out on everybody. But then the the, the kind of inherent promise in this is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, And those are the two themes that Peter is going to pick up in this sermon and then kind of drive those home, right? What you're seeing now, he's saying to these people, is this is exactly what Joel talked about. The Spirit's being poured out, right? And so this is beginning, and and notice uh, (laughs) 2.17, what he says, and it will be in the last days, says God. So what Peter's saying here is what we're seeing are some of the events that the prophets have prophesied about as the last days, one of the questions I get all the time is, Stacy, do you think we're living in the last days, in the end times? I'm like, yeah, absolutely we are. Oh, I, I knew it, I knew it. And then I say, yeah, but we've been there ever since the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago. Because Peter says, this is the beginning of the last days. Right? And, and one of the things, and also let me, let me set this in context. One of the things that's happening in the early book of Acts is um, the Lord has not left an instruction manual of how all these things are going to play out. And one of the, one of the things we're going to see is, is that something's going to happen, and then Peter or one of the other disciples are going to be given insight to understand and interpret what's happening, right? So like the pouring out of the Spirit. I don't think Jesus gave them, and I can tell that by their responses, that I don't think he told them, okay, the Spirit's going to be poured out, and then Peter, we're going to send you to the Gentiles, and there's going to be a guy named Saul who's going to come along. He's going to try to kill all of y'all. I'm going to turn him into my main dude, right? I'm going to send him into the Gentiles. Uh, right? You don't get a list like that. Things happen, and they're like, what in the world just happened? And then they'll, right, Spirit will bring to mind these scriptures that help them understand, oh, this is, this is incredible. But all that is predicated on what's already happened, and that's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And one of the things, and you know, we're so used to hearing this story that it's hard for us to put ourselves in the mindset of this original audience, particularly these Jewish people, because, you know, we have not only what's in the scriptures for us, but there's also a lot of extra biblical writings that help us tune in to what was going on around the time of Jesus. And one of the most significant discoveries uh, related to that is the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. A lot of you probably heard about this in the you know, mid 20th century. A little shepherd boy was out um, tending the flock, just happened to wound up in a cave and he found you know, copies and manuscripts, just in a treasure trove of manuscripts from around the time of Jesus. There was a complete copy of the prophet Isaiah, which completely destroyed liberal um, speculations about the reliability of the biblical text. It, it, in fact, these, the, the, one of the common stories that, that was circulated when these were first found, because they were immediately taken over by a group of scholars who sealed them up and didn't let anybody have any access to them. And the first explanation that was floated was, well, these things are incendiary because they just upend Christianity and show that Christianity is absolutely foolish. When the things were finally released, what we found out was the scrolls confirmed what conservative Christianity had been teaching, and it completely upended liberal Christianity that denied you know, the, the preservation and reliability of the scriptures, just a ton of things. And, but one of the sets of things that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls were the way these people who were at Qumran, which was a settlement outside of Jerusalem, they, they had left Jerusalem and went into the desert because they believed the day of the Lord was coming and the temple in Jerusalem had become so corrupt, they were sure the Lord was just gonna burn that place to the ground the minute he showed up, they didn't want to be anywhere close to it. So they had gone out into the desert to prepare the way for the Lord when he returned. And, and one of the things that, that we see in there is that there's a lot that they held in common with the Pharisees, uh, a lot of teaching that was shared in common. And, and one, of the, one of the major things was they all believed that we were moving toward the end of the age. And at the end of the age, when the Lord appeared, there would be a resurrection from the dead. Now, the Pharisees believe this. People at Qumran believe this. Sadducees did not. We'll talk about them a little bit later. We're going to run into them here in a little while. They didn't believe it, but there was this expectation that at the end of the age, the Lord would appear. He would bring judgment. There would be a resurrection of the righteous to everlasting peace. There would be a resurrection of the wicked to everlasting destruction, right? Daniel 12. All these things would happen. And then would come the new age, the messianic age in which the son of David, the Messiah would rule over his kingdom and all the nations would be put under subjugation to him. Right? But then something happens that completely upends that Jesus is resurrected right in the middle of this present age. Right? Jesus resurrection destroys that whole idea. Because instead of him being resurrected and then immediately bringing a, a kingdom in power and glory, what does he do? He's resurrected. He ascends back into heaven and says, ah, now it's up to y'all. Right? I, I, I mean, I don't know if y'all have ever thought about that. How, how, how ridiculous that plan is. Why did not he just stick around? Right? If, if Jesus were alive and walking around on planet Earth right now, having been killed and resurrected 2,000 years ago, do you think there would be anybody that could doubt the reality 
of what was going on, right? It would be the, it would be the surefire evidence that what we're talking about is actually real. But what does he do? He goes back up and like everybody else is going to have to depend on your witness that these things actually happened. Well, he's yeah, but that's no evidence to the rest of the world, right? You know, I mean, we can, we can claim that all day long, and it still sounds like crazy talk to people, right? I mean, uh, uh, unless you get to the point where you realize as a believer, most of what you say you believe is absolute foolishness to the rest of the world, you really don't get what we believe in, right? None of this stuff makes any rational sense if we really got right down to it, right? At least as far as the way we think about rationality. But that's not the way the Lord does things, right? And so here, uh, Jesus has been resurrected right in the middle of history. And he's ascended into heaven and no kingdom comes. So now everybody, the disciples are resting. Well, so what are we doing then, <laughs> right? I thought that was the plan. And, and, and let me just say this. this. This is so important. There is nothing that gets in the way of our understanding of scriptures more so than what we think the scriptures are saying. In other words, our own interpretations, right? If every time we open our Bible and you read it and you, and you don't come away with, oh, wait a minute, I think I've been reading that wrong, then, then something's not working right, right? They're, they're all, they're, there needs to be this self-critical evaluation of, of what's taking place. And that's what Jesus has taken these disciples through. And so Peter, as the Holy Spirit brings to mind this passage out of Joel, uh, he begins to understand, oh, wait a minute, Things are happening in a way a little bit different. And I, I say that because when we compare what he says here to what he says in his next sermon in chapter 3, there's a lot of similar ideas, but they give this really full picture of how the early church is starting to understand the way that things are going to unfold. And one of the big things is this idea here. The Spirit is going to come, and before the day of the Lord comes, before the end comes, there's going to be this time where everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'm sure they're putting that together with, oh yeah, he told us we're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's going to take us a while, right? We're not, we're not getting that finished next week or the week after that or the month after that. That's going to take some time. And here we are, 2023, and that work is still being done, right? Uh, so, so here... As Peter explains, the two big catchphrases here, the two big ideas, is that before this day of judgment comes, before the end comes, the Lord would pour out his spirit on all humanity. And that's what we're going to see in these chapters as we move forward. We're going to find out that the Lord pours out his spirit not just on the Jewish people, not just on the apostles, not just on the disciples, not just... Right on the people within Israel. He's going to expand it. He's going to pour it out on the Gentiles. And we see the good news spreading as the Holy Spirit comes and shows, I'm opening up this promise, not just to us, but to everybody. Right? This is a message that needs to go to the whole world. And Peter's going to touch on that in both of these sermons. Here, though, he, he introduces these two ideas, the coming of the Spirit and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that'll be critical uh, for the uh, end of this uh, sermon here. Any, any, any questions or comments on that so far? Everybody doing all right? I've been talking for a while. Um, all right, uh, one thing that's interesting. Uh, in 221, there in 221, the, uh, Acts 221, right before what was spoken through Joel, there in your notes, the phrase, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
In Hebrew, in Joel uh, 2, if you go and you look that passage up, it, it says, it, you'll read those same words, but it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and the Lord will be in all caps there. Okay. Which, as you know, that's the name of God, Yahweh. I am that I am. It's, it's his memorial name that he gave to Israel through Moses at the burning bush. You remember this? Uh, when Moses is, you know, set apart by God and Moses is going to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he says, well, when I go to the people, who should I tell them? Uh, what's your name? And, <laughs> and instead of giving them a name, he gives them a verb. I am. Right. And, you know, it's not like it's not like the Egyptian gods that Moses have and the Israelites have grown up here in Osiris and Ra. Those are personal names, right? And of course, in almost all ancient religions, the idea was if you knew the personal name of a god, you could call on that god and make a sacrifice or do whatever. And then there would be a quid pro quo where that god was bound to do what you wanted him or her to do, right? But Moses doesn't get a name like that. He gets I am. And then it's explained as Moses, I'm going to be who I will be. I will be with you. I will lead you. But none of y'all are going to manipulate me. Right? That's the idea of that name. Like it can't be manipulated. You, you, you can't call on it and offer a sacrifice. And then God is bound to do whatever you need him to do. Right. So it's really interesting that here from this passage in, in um, Joel. And again, all these Jews would have known that. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, I am. And by the way, that name was given to them to remember throughout all their generations because that's his name, right? He has, the Lord has many titles in the Old Testament, right? The Lord who provides, the Lord who sustains, right? He only has one name that he's given, and that's the name Yahweh. I am that I, I will be who I will be. And that's the one name that in their tradition they said we shouldn't say that one out loud, and it's the one thing that he told him, I want you to remember this through every generation. I am the one true God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your forefathers. I am who I am. And it's the one name that they suppressed, right? The very one that he commanded them to remember is the one that, he, that they suppressed. I, now, you know the history of Israel, that, you know, hard-headed, stiff-necked <laughs> all the way through there. The interesting thing, though, about this is, is that, as Peter begins this sermon and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, I am the one true God, right, will be saved. At the end of this sermon, he's going to tell them to call on the name of Jesus. Right. So already they've begun to understand, oh, wait a minute. Jesus is more than just who we thought he was. Right. He is equivalent to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Peter uh, it, really interesting. Uh, Peter, in his second letter, refers to Jesus as our Lord and our God, Jesus, our Messiah. Right. Uh, Thomas, if you remember Thomas, who was not there when Jesus first appeared on the night of the resurrection, he said, man, I'm not going to believe until I can touch his side and see the wounds. And then Jesus appears back up to Thomas. He says, Thomas, come here. Check it out. Here are the wounds. Put your hand in. It's me. And when Thomas realized what's going on, what does he do? He falls down. He says, my Lord and my God. Right. So very early on, there's this understanding that Jesus is God. 
Right. And, and Peter's going to make a big point about that in these sermons as we go forward. And, and so just hold that hold that in mind for a little bit. And I'll show you how that connects here in just a minute. He, he goes on top of page 19. Um, really powerful what he says here. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, a man uh, attested to you, pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. And yet God has raised him up, ending the pains of his death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that statement. Uh, yeah, you can... Send Jesus to death, but you can't keep him there. Right? He, he, he can't be held by it. That's a, that's a really powerful idea. Uh, later, let, let me, in fact, let me, let me show you one connection with that. Peter, where are you coming from, brother? You should write a book. You got some good stuff to say here. Look, uh, look at the bottom of page 23. Very similar statement. This is in his second sermon. This is after they heal a man who was lame. He and John, so going through the temple. The very bottom of page 23, uh, look, look in 314. This is, now, this is right in the middle of the sermon. But he says, listen, you've denied the holy and righteous one. And he's talking about Jesus. And you asked to have a murderer given to you. Remember uh, Barsabbas. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Barabbas, who is, he, they asked to give over. He was an insurrectionist and a murderer. But then he says this, 315, you killed the source of life. Now, that's the, the word that Peter uses there is a it, people struggle over how to translate the word. It's kind of a, a weird word. Uh, it means the, the source. It can mean something like the head of, the foundation of, right? But here, I, I think this translation, the source of life, is a good translation. You've killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead and we're witnesses of this, right? And you know, that's a power... <laughs> Jesus is the source of life, right? Everything that was created was created, as we saw, saw, I talked about last week, I think, by him, through him, and for him. Everything that now exists has its origin in him, right? He is the source of life. He is not dependent on something else for his life. He is life. You, you understand what I'm saying? I don't know how you get your mind around that. Those words come out of my mouth and I have no idea what I'm talking about, Right? Uh, he is not like us. You and I are dependent on him for life. Everything that exists is dependent on him for life. Hebrews says that he is now upholding all things by his powerful word. Right. So, so here, Peter and them, as they're starting to understand how everything comes together, he, he accuses, <laughs> he accuses you know, these people who have begged for Barabbas instead of Jesus. You've killed the source of life. But it wasn't possible for him to be held in death, right? So, so notice he's, he's starting to put the, the blame squarely on them. Uh, also, a really interesting thing, there's, there's a sense of accountability. In 2.22, right, Jesus performed all these miracles and wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Um, notice, and this is a subtle thing that Peter's going to do a little bit later, Notice he doesn't say that Jesus just did the miracles, but that God did the miracles through him. You see that? They did, he did them through Jesus. 
And that's going to be important because later Peter and John are going to do some of the same types of things that Jesus did, healings and miracles. And it's really important now that we see that they're done through them, not through their own power and authority. Right. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Verse 23, um, really great statement, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Right. So everything that happened was the plan that God had determined would happen before any of it happened. What a mistake. Right. And in fact, later in the New Testament, we get the sense that everything in human history had been moving toward this point. Right. Everything had been put in place to move to to guide us to to get to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Y'all know that, that even, even when we use the terminology, that was the crux of the matter, right? And, and people, don't, we don't use that terminology a lot. It used to be an old thing, right? But when you talk about the crux of something, that's like the central thing that everything binds together in, right? It's the key thing that helps you understand everything else. That word is Latin for cross. It's the crux, Literally, where everything comes in, that's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the thing that gives meaning and significance to everything that's happened in human history and also helps us understand what is going to happen. Right. And so so Peter here makes the point that that all that was according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. It wasn't something that happened by chance. There's no such thing to begin with, right? But this is something that God had been planning for. But at the same time, and the Greek is very forceful there. I, I don't, I, I think this, this particular translation takes some of the sting out of what Peter says next. He says very specifically, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Right. God has delivered him up according to his plan, but you're the one that crucified him. Right. And I love this statement because it gets into that. And y'all, we're not going to get into this today, but it gets into that, you know, that swirling mix of stuff that people get all bent out of shape about in terms of God's sovereign oversight of all things and human responsibility. Where does one begin and the other end? Right. So here is God's plan being worked out. But the people that actually work out the plan are not innocent because what they did was still evil. You follow what I'm saying? God had been working toward this and the Jews did it. And they're not able to say, well, that's what God planned. So I guess we're off the hook. Now, Peter puts them squarely on the hook. Right. This was God's plan. But you crucified him at the hands of lawless men. Right now. And it, even, it ain't even got as bad as it's going to get, right? He's just, he's, he's putting them, he's, he is, he's laying the hook out there. And just a minute, he's going to set the hook. If, you, if you've ever done any fishing, we're going to, he's going to, going to set it deep and, and, and rough, right? So, so here, notice, uh, Jesus has been delivered up according to God's plan. You're the ones who've crucified him and killed him, but God raised him up and in the pains of his death. It's not possible for him to be held by it. And then he gives some proof of that out of the, out of the Hebrew Scriptures, Acts 2.25, uh, on down to the end of the page there. He says, David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. 
You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Uh, that's a quote from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Uh, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. This is um, one of the first Psalms that Peter's going to quote, right? He's already quoted from the prophets, Joel. Now he's quoting from the Psalms. And I'll remind you that in Luke 24, uh, we looked at right before, um, well, on the night of his resurrection, Jesus had told the disciples and explained to them everything uh, in the uh, law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms that must be fulfilled about him. And that's what Peter is starting to do here. He's quoted one of the prophets. He's quoted one of the Psalms. He's going to quote another one here in a minute. And then his next sermon, he's going to go to the law of Moses to show how Jesus has fulfilled uh, these things that were written about him. And the really interesting thing to me in all this is, apart from that Joel passage, that one you might expect, none of these are things that you'd expect them to be quoting from. None of these are the big passages, right? You can go to Isaiah 53, and in Isaiah 53, you have a prophetic um, insight, presight into both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't go there. Well, he doesn't say yeah. Messiah there. He just says servant. There we go, right? So, so they didn't have, that had to be revealed later. Yes, right? So, and that's the key. They're, they're, they're picking these Psalms, have these key words in them that fit with the message that Peter is really trying to drive home. And the great thing is there's a treasure trove in the Old Testament of passages that clearly point to Jesus and these events. And as the Holy Spirit brings them to mind, uh, some of them seem like they come out of nowhere. This one, though, uh, is, is specifically uh, two things. Notice in the first couple of verses, it talks about the confidence, right? I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken, right? But then the more important thing or the more central thing here is moreover my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Uh, Hades, that, that word in Greek, uh, is basically synonymous with the Hebrew word Sheol that you've probably seen before in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the Psalms. And that's just the grave. It's just the place of the dead. It's, it's where the body goes uh, after someone dies. And that's, that's a really complex topic too. But, but here, here in this context, uh, I think most of the uh, people that are hearing Peter would have understood this as just a reference to the grave. And, and particularly that he's not going to allow the Holy One to see decay. Right? Jesus' body was not put in the grave and it stayed there and decayed back to dust. Instead, he was resurrected. Right? His body was brought back. Uh, and as he brings it back, you'll fill me with gladness in your presence. So Psalm 16, it's, it's got the key words that Peter needs, particularly uh, the things about not abandoning him. And that's the very thing he picks up in the very next statement. This is the point he's making. 2.29, he says, brothers, now, and notice how he says brothers. Uh, now he's drawn him in closer. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying, listen, David couldn't have been talking about himself there, right? He couldn't have been. Instead, this, uh, 2.30, since he was a prophet. Look, look at that. Who's he talking about? David. David is a prophet. Um, it is really interesting, even in the Old Testament, 
David functions, although he's not given these titles, as clearly as the great king, the Messiah, the anointed one. He functions as a, as a priest in a way that he should have been killed for, but the Lord lets it slide. And in here he's a prophet, right? The key things out of the Old Testament, right? Uh, so here Peter calls him specifically a prophet. Again, I've read books that... that um, they want to make this case that the Psalms are not prophetic in any nature whatsoever. Here, Peter says, David was a prophet and the things that he wrote, part of them were prophetic. I, I'm going to side with Peter. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to think Peter knows more what he's talking about than what the modern liberals do, who I don't probably couldn't change the oil in their car from what I can tell from reading the rest of the things that they say. Here, very clearly, he said he's a, he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. There's the word. Seeing this in advance, he spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus and we are all witnesses of it, right? So, so here is a psalm that has all the key words that Peter needs to make the point uh, that he's making. And I have no doubt that as David wrote these words originally, he is probably not clearly foreseeing how all this is going to come into play. He's writing very poetically about his own experience uh, as the king of Israel and how the Lord is going to deliver him. But that becomes more escalated when we apply it to Jesus. And one of the things that we see is that many of the things that were written in the Psalms that were poetic and somewhat symbolic, they become more literal and pronounced when we see Jesus, in a sense, fulfilling these words, filling these words out. Uh, actually taken root very literally in the things that happened to Jesus. And so that's the point that, that uh, Peter makes here, that you know, even, even David, as a prophet, uh, knew that this was going to happen, right? Had some idea of some of these things that were going to happen, and particularly what he says there that he had sworn an oath. You see that? To him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. That is a reference to 2 Samuel 7, you can write that in your notes. It's 2 Samuel 7. Even more specifically, uh, that's a reference to Psalm 132.11. That psalm, uh, among other psalms, this one is one of the more clear ones, uh, makes specific reference to the oath and the promise that the Lord had given to David to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Now, y'all may remember that story. 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. Because this is, this is the period in David's life. Now remember, David was the great king, right, who was given promises that he is, uh, in a sense, becomes the prototype for the king to come, the Messiah to come. And so David becomes, you know, foundational to everything that the Lord does. And the Lord um, gives promises to David. He swears an oath, makes a covenant. We often call it, call it the Davidic covenant. The Psalms refer to it as a covenant later. But in 2 Samuel 7, uh, the Lord has been with David. And if you remember, David is faithful to the Lord all the way through, uh, early on. Now, at the end, he gets into some trouble. But, but in, in the early days, he has been faithful to the Lord, right? He comes in as a young guy. Everybody's afraid of Goliath. They don't want to go out. And David is like, you know, okay, 
He can say some things, but the minute he starts talking trash about our God, well, let me go get some rocks and I'm going to kill that uncircumcised Gentile where he stands, right? And he goes out and they all laugh at him until that rock buries about three inches into Goliath's forehead. And then David goes over and chops off his head with his own sword. Now, that's a man I can get behind. I don't know about y'all. That's, that's pretty good, right? And then from that point forward, the Lord is with him, right? Uh, and, and David is faithful to the Lord. He, I mean, and even before all those incredible things happen, you remember Samuel, the prophet, is sent to the house of David. And, and Yahweh, the one true God, had said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, pick the next king from the sons of Jesse. And the, he goes to Jesse's household and bring all the boys out, all the stout, able boys. And, and um, uh, he goes through them one by one. And nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. Gets to the end of them. And uh, no king. And Samuel says, are you sure this is all your sons? The Lord told me there's going to be one out of your house. And Jesse says, well, I got one more, but he's a shepherd and a musician. He ain't, no, he ain't, he ain't going to be no good to anybody, right? And Samuel says, well, let me go take a look at him. And he goes out and David's this scrawny kid right out there. Uh, and he takes one look at him and says, there is the next king of Israel, right? Beyond what everybody thinks is going to happen. He's not tall and handsome like Saul was before him, right? I mean, some incredible analogies and all those, right? N never pick the tall, handsome dude. I always go pick the guy that nobody's paying attention to, right? <laughs> that's what uh, they always did. That's, that's the way they always did, right? He proved that it was from him and not from them. That's exactly right. And you remember the, the great uh, statement in that um, when all this is coming together. You know, the Lord says, uh, men look at outward appearances, but I look at the heart. I'm looking at what's going on down in there. And David is the kind of guy that he needs. David doesn't give up. He's going to be faithful to the Lord. And so uh, David finishes the conquest that Joshua and the Israelites did not finish when they ran in to take over the Holy Land after coming out of Egypt. He, he, he routes the Philistines who have come in and he takes over all the areas that the Lord had said, this is the land that was given to Abraham. These are the ones I want you to settle in, right? David finishes that work hundreds of years after Joshua and them come in. And, and finally, uh, David, he doesn't have any more wars to fight. He's sitting at home in Jerusalem in his palace and he looks out and there's the tabernacle over there, right? Just a tent. And that's where the Lord is dwelling. And he gets it in his mind of, I'm going to build a temple for the Lord, a great house for him, like this house of cedar that I have. And so uh, the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, to David and says, David, I know you want to build a temple for me, but that's not for you to do. That is not going to happen. You're not going to build a house for me. Instead, I'm going to get, build a house for you. And your house is going to be a line of descendants. And one day I'm going to raise up one of your sons and he is going to sit on the throne, on your throne forever and ever. Right? One of your sons is going to rule forever. And then everybody stops that passage right there. But right after that, some, David does something incredible that puts an exclamation mark on the whole thing. David, after he gets this word from Nathan, the prophet, the word of the Lord to him, he goes, you remember this? He goes into the temple before the Lord and he falls down before the Lord. He says, Lord, who am I 
that you would bless me and my family in this way. Right. And then he makes a statement that all the translators just get all bent out of shape about. They can't figure out how to translate because they mistranslate this one significant word all the time. And because they tr they've translated it wrong all the way up until this point, they get it wrong here. He says this, Lord, this is Torah for all mankind. And most of the commentators have already got it in their head that the Hebrew word Torah means law. But the Hebrew word Torah means instruction. So when the Torah is given through Moses, it has laws in it. But the overarching idea is this is instruction. You understand me? The Torah is instruction for how the Israelites need to live faithfully before the Lord. When David gets this word from the Lord, he goes in and he says, this is Torah. This is instruction for all humanity. And what does he mean by that? He means everybody needs to know this. Everybody that exists needs to know that one of my sons is going to come and he's going to rule on my throne forever and ever. That becomes the basis of Psalm 2, right? The, the leaders of the world take counsel together. How do we throw off <laughs> the rule of the one true God and his anointed Messiah that he has installed on Mount Zion? How do we get rid of that? And the Lord in the heavens laughs. He says, no, no, no. He's my Messiah. And I'm going to shatter every one of y'all with a rod of iron. All of you who are disobedient. So what should you do? You better kiss the sun. It's the way Psalm 2 ends. Kiss the sun so that you may not perish in the way. Right? That's the promises of David. That's what everybody on planet Earth needs to understand. Let me ask you this. How do you think it would affect world politics if every leader in the world lived with the understanding and accepting the idea that there is a son of David who is coming with a kingdom that will never end, who is going to rule forever? Right. That would probably change quite a few things. Instead, we're in Psalm 2. We're trying to cast those fetters off. We're trying to do our own thing. We don't want that. Right. Uh, and so here. That's the oath, right, that, that the Lord had made to David to sit one of his descendants on his throne. Uh, and the whole forever language, that's the issue. This is, this is the problem that nobody had solved. And David even meditates on this in several of the Psalms. How can one of my sons rule on my throne forever? Last time I checked, we're all going to die. I'm gonna, so how can you have somebody who's going to live forever and rule on my throne. And this is what the resurrection explains. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, never to die again. He can't be held in death's grasp. You can't ultimately kill the source of life and keep him there, right? So here, in fulfillment of the promises that the Lord had made to David, you now have Jesus who's raised from the dead. And notice the conclusion here, Acts 22, 33. And by the way, this whole Jewish audience would have known this. They would have grown up their whole life hearing about the teaching of Moses and the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the promises given to David. I mean, that was their great hope for the Messiah, that he's going to come. He's going to destroy the enemies of Israel. And then we're going to be elevated to be preeminent and rule over all the other nations. That's what they were all looking for. And that is going to happen, but not yet. And that's what Peter and them are starting to explain and, and understand themselves. Acts 2.33, look at this. This is so good. Oh, this is, this is really good. Therefore, 
Right? Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Notice, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. He, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He, Jesus, has poured out what you both see and hear. Everything that's happening today is because of Jesus. You follow me? Everything. God working through Jesus, even in, in the present day there. Verse 234, for it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's the two critical titles, Lord. He is Lord over all things. He's also the Messiah, the King the anointed king, right? And uh, in fact, from, from here on out, that title, Lord, it is the most used title of Jesus in both Luke and Acts. Lord. Lord. Yeah, it's used twice as many times as the term Christ, which means Messiah, right? That's not his last name. Christ means the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one. So this becomes very significant in Luke and in Acts. Uh, and also notice, uh, <laughs> I love this reference because he quotes from Psalm 110. That, that's the quote, uh, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make him make your enemies your footstool. Right. Um, that is the very verse that Jesus used to shut up the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the end of his earthly ministry. You remember They'd come to him asking him questions, trying to trip him up. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, hey, you know, Sadducees come to him. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they try to get him embroiled in this ridiculous question about the resurrection. And a w woman who's been married to seven husbands, well, who will she be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus sets them up by saying, you, you're, you're stupid because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Right. And I love that because he just calls them out. You, you don't know what you're talking about. You're idiots. Right. Um, I, I am still I'm still searching the Gospels to find that meek and mild Jesus <laughs> that we see in all the pictures. You know, he's got on something that resembles a woman's robe. He's got too much product in his hair. He's kind of glowing. You know what I mean? I, I have not seen that Jesus anywhere in there. Uh, now, I will say he is merciful and he is tender. To, to those who are on the down and outs. But man, you, you come against him acting like you know what's up. He is going to shred you up one side and down the other. And that's what he does to all the religious authorities, right? Because if there's anything that Jesus hates, he hates religion more than anything else, right? Man-made rules and stipulations that people think somehow lead people to God. Jesus just dismantles all of that, right? And so here, this is the very last thing that he brings up after they've tried to question him. He says, okay, those are some good questions. Let me ask you a question. How is it when David says in Psalm 110 here, he says, the Lord declared to my Lord. And again, they would have known the Hebrew of this. In the Hebrew, it's this. Yahweh has declared to my Lord. So this is David talking. And as David talks, he's saying that Yahweh, the one true God, has made this declaration to my Lord. And then Jesus raises this question. Everybody knows that this psalm is talking about the Messiah when he comes as the son of David. He is the second Lord there. How is it David 
can call his son, who is the Messiah, his Lord. Because that's not something they did in that culture. The father was always greater than the son, right? In terms of honor and status and so forth. So how can David call his own son his Lord in that, right? Checkmate. They, they don't know how to answer that. Oh, we didn't think about that one, right? That, that, that seems like a, uh, you know, kind of an odd uh, quirk, you know, an odd thing to pull a big deal out of. But that's the very thing that uh, Jesus draws on. And now Peter repeats, saying that the Lord has declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, y'all, everything I'm talking about is Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things that we've been looking forward to. He is Lord because he has died and he's been raised from the dead and he is now at the right hand of God, which by the way, as you probably know, that's the place of, of power and authority to be at God's right hand. That's the person who kind of oversees everything. It's, it's also in ancient courts, the person that was at the right hand of the king, that was the person that usually had the power and authority to execute what the king wanted to have done. Right? To, to be at the right hand of any king was to be in a place of power and oversight and authority. And so now that's what he says. Jesus is at his right hand. And he's just spelling out what Jesus had already told them earlier in Matthew 28. All power, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Remember that? And so now this is just spelling it out for him. And, the, and then he... <laughs> And he just throws that in there because of that last statement. He's at the right hand of God. He is the Lord. And he's waiting for the time that he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And who are Jesus' enemies? Everybody that's in that crowd. Y'all are the... Hmm. I, I don't know. Last time I checked. But if you have somebody crucified, that would seem to indicate you're his enemy. Right? And we know that because of their response. Look, look at this. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Top of page 21. Now, when they heard this, they came under deep conviction. They were pierced to the heart. That's what Luke says there in the, in the Greek. And that's so much more powerful. They were pierced to the heart. It's like an arrow, right? Spear shooting right through to the core of who they are. They're pierced. And, and, and uh, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Verse 238. Repent, said Peter to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. See that? And by the way, notice how all those titles are just put together there. Earlier, as I said in Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is the Lord? Peter just told us. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has been right um, certified as both the Lord and the Messiah. And, but then he ties that in, in with, for as many as the Lord our God will call. Right? And so this, this, is, this is starting to develop uh, some of the teaching that, that Jesus himself uh, gave in the Gospels. You, you remember at one point the disciples come to him and said, say, uh, uh, I, I th in fact, I think it's maybe even Thomas. Don't quote me on that. But they come to him and say, they say, uh, Lord, uh, show us God and we'll believe. Right? Show us the Father and we'll believe. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long? 
Do you not realize I and the Father are one? If you see me, you see the Father, right? In, in John 1, the great gospel, it says, No one has seen the one true God at any time. No one's actually seen God. No human has ever seen God in his essence as who he is because you can't survive it. Right. In fact, Moses, wanted, you remember Moses wanted to do this. His, Moses was like, Lord, let me see your glory. Right? Just let me see your glory. He's like, Moses, I, you, I can't do that. It'll kill you. Right. And I need you to do stuff. So we've got to keep you around. But this, so this is what I'll do. Uh, there's a crack in the rock over there. I'll stick you in the crack of the rock and I'll pass by and I'll put my hand over the rock and I'll just let you see the light that's coming off of me. Right. And that was so powerful that when Moses came down off the mountain, he's still glowing irradiated with the glory of God, right? It's too much. John says, no man has seen God at any time, but Jesus has fully explained him. If you see Jesus, you've seen the one true God, right? And so these things are starting to be tied together in the minds of the disciples here. And Peter, very clearly, he's picked up on that at this point, right? Um, And also notice, again, to call on the name of, the G, uh, of Jesus. It's the, that's to call on the name of the Lord. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing here is, is that as they come to him, those who are his enemies, if nothing happens, those who would have been his enemies, would have been a footstool for his feet, they now are going to be forgiven. They're going to be brought in as part of his family. And that's one of the things that's going to develop as we go here, that, that Jesus is doing this work that even the disciples haven't fully understood. In fact, it's not going to be until Paul receives his revelation later that that we find out that this work that God has been doing that began in eternity, right? His predetermined plan that began way out there. Paul, as we go through, we, we come to understand that from eternity, the father has been looking to provide a spotless bride for his one unique son, Jesus. Right? That's us. We're figured out as, as his bride, right? The Lord has been working to build a temple that's not made with bricks and stones and mortar out of people in which his Holy Spirit dwells forever. So, so that's what he's been working toward from all eternity, right? The Lord has been working to build a family in which his one unique son, Jesus, is the firstborn over that family. And instead of hoarding all the riches and the inheritance of that family for himself, he distributes it freely to all of his brothers and sisters, which is us, right? The Lord has been working from eternity until that present time to create a people that will proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his unapproachable light. See, that, that's what Peter and them are starting to understand. He's just got a glimpse of it now, right? Just a glimpse of it. And as we go through and we trace these sermons, you realize, wow, boy, the Holy Spirit is turning on the light bulbs left and right, you know? Nevertheless, this, as I said last week, this sermon by Peter is a masterpiece. It's so fantastic, you know? Uh, I mean, it gets right to the point. And then uh, we'll, we'll stop right there, but notice, notice the conclusion. This, we talked about this last week. There's, there, there, there's some critical things there. Verse 39, the promises for you and your children, for those who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. That is, that is looking forward to the calling of the nations, the Gentiles into the promises, which we'll get into uh, in uh, Acts 8, 9, and 10. 
So we'll come back and talk more about some of these connections a little bit later. But Acts 2.40, it says, And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this uh, corrupt generation, this wicked generation. And so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I, I think verse 42 actually goes with the next section. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. But notice, after this sermon, about 3,000 people come to Jesus. Um, that may be more people coming to Jesus than Jesus brought during his entire earthly ministry, based on what we've heard earlier. Right? Most, most people have left. They've gone aside. In Peter's second sermon, uh, Peter's second sermon, uh, and we see this in Acts 4. We'll, we'll get into this next week. Second summer he preaches in Acts, he brings in 5,000 people in a matter of days. Man, I'll tell you what. Uh, that's some good preaching. That is some good uh, spirit-filled preaching when that kind of thing happens. Uh, they were all Jewish at this point. Yeah, they, they, these are all Jewish that are there in... Uh, 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 I, I should say... Could be some proselytes in that, you know, people who had converted over to Judaism. But for now, this is all a singularly Jewish audience at this point. Yeah, that's great. And we're going to make a big deal about that next week because some things happen with that in this next sermon. All right, y'all, we're a little bit over time. Let me go ahead and pray and we'll, we'll turn loose and let everybody get on out of here that needs to get on to work and so forth. And again, I'll be happy to stick around and, and uh, deal with questions afterwards. But let me go ahead and uh, pray and close us out. Father, again, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all the ways that it speaks so uh, powerfully to us today. And Lord, we, uh, we, we live in an age where these things that we're reading about, they seem like they're just utterly incomprehensibly ridiculous on one level. But um, at least for me, that's one of the things that points to the fact that these things are more than likely exactly what happened. Because if you were starting some kind of new religion, this is the last way you would do it. And so, Father, we, we thank you that not only can we read these words, but also you have given us your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds and to give us uh, insight and understanding of these things as we read them. And Lord, as we, as we come to your word, none of us have all of the answers. None of us uh, know everything that we need to know. And nevertheless, you give us exactly what we need as we need it. And so I pray that we can make the most use of that and that in everything that we study together, it will have the primary effect of helping us to love you uh, more deeply with everything that we are. And then also uh, our neighbors as ourselves, because that's the main thing you're doing in and through us here. And so we put all these things before you and uh, ask that you'll provide for us in all the ways that we cannot even uh, understand now uh, in all the ways uh, in the things that we need. And so we uh, ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen.